You'll find our text this morning in the book of Malachi. It's actually kind of most of the book of Malachi. Um, this, this morning, I really, I'd like to take us on a little tour um, through this last book of the Old Testament. I call it a tour because I really don't have a traditional sermon set up, right? I've not got a, a bunch of traditional points, as it were. I've got no poems, no songs, um, no quotes by famous people. I can promise you that this will not be a three-hour tour, though. We will really just be like, um, I, my goal is to guide you through the highlights um, of the book, as it were, uh, obviously for the sake of time. But I must also warn you, this tour is not um, insured. We are 100% uninsured, therefore we are not liable for any injured feelings, okay? If you've got a problem with something happened on this tour, you take it up with the Word of God, all right? This tour also may take uh, sharp, abrupt turns at any moment, okay? So um, any accidents, any injuries, may I please um, point your attention to the exit doors in the back? No, I'm just, I just, uh, I'm just playing. If you're visiting with us this morning... Um, First, thank you for coming. Also, I'm sorry, I am not the normal tour guide, as it were. Um, he is not here, if you have not figured out. Uh, also, any complaints, suggestions? Um, the suggestion box is Chris Pearson, as always. Um, that is chrispearson at gmail.com. But really, before our tour begins, I, I just want to make sure, right, because we, we don't really have any points, and, and I really just, my goal is to let the Word of God speak for itself. Amen. And so um, I got to make sure that we're all on the same bus, though, because not everybody's bus is going to the same place if you're picking up what I'm putting down. Some people ain't going to the same destination you're going to. Um, so I got to make sure that you don't end up lost. Listen, Malachi is straightforward. He's to the point. I can appreciate that in this day and age. Right? In this day of, like, confusion and political correctness, I can really appreciate somebody who just wants to get to the point. Well, I also like Malachi because he, he addresses one of the biggest issues that every single church in America faces, half-hearted devotion to God. Right? It stinks, especially when it shows up in my own life. Malachi gets blunt so that we can get real about how we live and what that says about the God that we claim to live for. See, listen, the church has a calling, Right? Much like the children of Israel had a calling. Right? And the origins of that calling can be traced all the way back to the covenant that God made with Abraham in Genesis um, chapter 12. In verse 3, you'll find a piece of that covenant. Right? He says, I will bless them that bless thee, and I'm going to curse them that curse thee. And in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Right? And then after Abraham almost, almost sacrifices Isaac back to the Lord in obedience, we see God reaffirm this piece of the covenant with him um, in chapter 22, verse 18. He says, in thy seeds shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. And Jesus um, refers to this often, right? Uh, um, you may remember Matthew 5. He tells his listeners at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. He says, ye are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, neither on a, or but on a candlestick. And it giveth light unto all that are in the house. Now listen, I know we've all probably heard some evangelical, um, some, some sort of missions-minded sermon um, preached proclaiming that Christians are to be the salt and the light of the world. And I, I'm not arguing um, that certainly that principle of, of that message cannot be for us, 
right? For, for our calling is to literally carry the gospel to all the peoples. But when Jesus says that you are the light of the world in Matthew 5, there are no Christians yet. He's, he's not died. He's not going to the cross. He's not given his life, right? Therefore, there's, there's no Christians yet. So when he proclaims to his listeners that they are to be the light of the world, his statement is a reference to the nation of Israel's calling. They were to be the light of the world. Jesus was the Messiah that the Jews had been anticipating for centuries, right? And as such, he was born into a Jewish family. He was reared according to Jewish law in a Jewish town, selected Jewish disciples. He spoke in Jewish synagogues at Jewish temples. He traveled mainly to Jewish areas, and his mission and fulfillment to Jewish prophets was to the Jewish people, right? And he's upfront about it. That's why he says in Matthew 15, verse 24, he tells a Gentile woman, right, whose daughter needed healing. Do you remember the story? He says, I'm not sent, but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel, right? He says in Matthew 10, um, verse 5, right, when Jesus sends out his disciples, he commands them as they go. He says, listen, go not into the way of the Gentiles, Right, and into the city of the Samaritans enter ye not, but go rather into the lost sheep of the house of Israel. The people of Israel had been abandoned by their worthless shepherds, and that's why we read in Matthew 9, verse 35, it says, when Jesus went about the cities um, and the villages, he was teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them. Why was he moved with compassion? Because they fainted and they were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. And listen, it's not that Israel didn't have shepherds. They had shepherds. An entire tribe was devoted, right? Made a covenant with God to be their shepherds. They had shepherds, but the shepherds had failed them and led them astray. And because of their failure, not only was the nation of Israel not illuminating the path right, to a right relationship with God for all the other nations of the world, but they were actually turning all the other nations of the world against God, from God, right? Do you understand? Like the, the very people that God spoke to through his prophets, the very people who, who had the, the written law of God, those people who should have known, right, the very ones who God had called to be the light of the world were actually the ones causing the Gentiles to blaspheme the name of God, as Paul wrote in, in Romans 2.24, the shepherds had failed the people. And that's why Jesus emphasized in John 10, um, verse 11, he says, I am the good shepherd. Listen, these dudes are in it for themselves. These dudes are only picking the pieces they want to pick. Listen, but I am the good shepherd. And as such, I will lay down my life for you. Jesus' ministry was mainly to the Jewish people. And that doesn't mean that salvation is not for everyone. Right? Jesus' mission was to shepherd the Jewish people to repentance, right? So they would turn from their wickedness and lead them back into a right relationship um, with the Lord so that Israel could once again be that light to all the other nations. Right? Jesus was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, as he put it, in order that when they were regathered and, and reconstitution of the true Israel, the blessing of salvation would then be released to flow to all the other nations of the world, just as God promised in the Old Testament. Right? He ministered to the Jews for the sake of the entire world. His mission was to restore them to their calling to be the light of the world. And they were failing at their calling to be the light of the world because of their half-hearted devotion to God. 
They were failing at the calling that God had for their lives because of their half-hearted devotion to God. Right, this was the case in Jesus' time on earth when he came to minister. And this was also the case in Malachi's day, some 400 years before Jesus even came. Listen, if you want a blueprint on how to never, ever feel God's presence in your life, how to never, ever right, tell if he's speaking to you, how to never, ever know how to walk blindly through this earth, we've got one right here in Malachi. Right, Just follow these simple instructions to guarantee God never moves in your life. Malachi 1, verse 1, the burden of the Lord came. <clears throat> the burden of the word of the Lord of the came uh, of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. Listen, God is not a fan of half-hearted devotion to him. Listen, God is not a fan of half-hearted devotion to him. That's why he says, listen, what I've got to say, it's going to be hard. It's going to be heavy. It's going to be weighty. It's going to be a burden as it will. It, it might sting a little. It might leave a mark. Verse two, I have loved you. Saith the Lord, yet ye say, wherein hast thou loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother? Saith the Lord, yet I loved Jacob. Hey, be careful questioning what God says. That's a tactic to Satan. Right? They ask, how has God loved us? You say you love us, prove it. How have you loved us, God? They had come to a point where not only were they not obedient in their calling, um, but they doubted God's love for them. And God goes on to give them a little bit of a history lesson. Right? He reminds them just how much he loves them. He says, listen, you weren't even supposed to be a nation. By birthright, it was supposed to go to Esau. But I loved you. I chose you. And by verse 6, he narrows in on a, on a very specific issue. And for the, really the remainder of the first chapter, all the way through the third chapter, God's developing this picture, and it's the proof of their half-hearted devotion to God. Verse 6, he said, a, a son honoreth his father, and a servant his master. If then I be a father, where is mine honor? And if I be a master, where is my fear, saith the Lord of hosts unto you? O priest that despise my name, and ye say, wherein or how have we despised thy name? God says, listen, you, you honor your father, right? You show, you show reverence to your boss. I am God the father, yet your actions don't bring me any honor, right? You say with your mouth that I'm the master, but your life doesn't display any sort of fear of me, right? And instead of bringing honor and reverence to God, their lives um, tell a very different statement. Right? They actually despise God through their actions. But they refuse to take responsibility. Instead, they ask pridefully, how? How have we despised you, God? What is it have we done? I've done nothing. Verse 7, ye offer polluted bread upon mine altar, and ye say, wherein have you polluted me? In that ye say, the table of the Lord is contemptible. If ye offer the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? And if ye offer the lame and sick, is it not evil? He says, offer it to the governor. Will he be pleased with thee? Or accept thy person, saith the Lord of hosts. And now I pray, beseech God. Beg God that he may be gracious unto us. This hath been by your means that he, um, will, he have, will he regard your persons, saith the Lord of hosts. Look, Malachi says to them, you need to beg to God. 
beg to God that he may be gracious to pardon you. Listen, if this act persists, if you keep doing it this way, if you keep offering God your leftovers, your trash, he's not going to be accepting anything from you. Skip down to verse 13. Ye said also, behold, what a weariness is it. And ye have snuffed at it, saith the Lord of hosts. And ye bought that which was torn and lame and sick. Thus ye have bought an offering. Should I accept this of your hand, saith the Lord? God says, listen, not only are you bringing me stuff that you wouldn't even offer to the governor, you're bringing me your trash, right? But, but you're holding back the stuff that's good. You're holding back. You actually have better, but you're giving me your garbage. And not only are you doing all that, but you're walking around acting like this is some sort of chore to bring me your garbage, to bring me your leftovers. Verse 14, a curse be the deceiver which hath in his flock a male and voweth and sacrifice unto the Lord a corrupt thing. For I am a great king, saith the Lord of hosts, and my name is dreadful. Among the heathen. Then we get to chapter 2. And the first nine verses are a warning to the priests. Right? And God says, listen, I've already cursed your blessings. I've already cursed them because you refuse to listen to me. You refuse to take my words to heart. Right? This isn't the first warning God's given Israel. Just read through the Old Testament. You refuse to take anything I'm saying to heart. Right? And if you re- refuse to bring glory to my name and you continue not to listen to me, he's telling me, and you don't take to heart what I'm saying, not only am I going to curse your blessings, or I, I've already cursed your blessings, but I'm going to curse you. Verse 4 of chapter 2. And ye shall know that I have sent this commandment unto you, and that my covenant might be with Levi, saith the Lord of hosts. My commandment was with him. It was of life and peace, and I gave, um, I gave to him the fear, and I gave them to him for the fear wherewith he feared me. He was afraid of my name, and the law of truth was in his mouth, and iniquity was not found on his lips. And he walked with me in peace and equity, and did turn many away from iniquity. For the priest's lips should keep knowledge, and they should seek the law at his mouth. For he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts, but ye departed out of the way, Ye have caused many to stumble in the law, and ye have corrupted the covenant of Levi, saith the Lord of hosts. Therefore, I have made you contemptible and base before all the people, according as ye have not kept my ways, but have been partial to the law. God says, listen to the spiritual shepherds and the priests, listen, you were supposed to be my messengers. You were supposed to be the people that were were telling everybody of me, lighting and guiding the people, right? You are supposed to shepherd the people so that they can then be the light to all the other nations around, right? You were the ones, but yet your actions are causing the people to stumble because you haven't obeyed the law yourself, right? Instead, you're just living out the pieces that you like. Hey, listen, be careful cherry-picking from the Word of God. Be careful picking out the pieces that you like. You might just end up souring your blessings. Pick with me in verse 11. Right? Malachi is going to bring new evidence of their half-hearted devotion to God. Right? God says through Malachi, not, not only has your, your half-hearted devotion to me led you to give less than what was required, right? even less than your best. He says in verse 11, but... Judah hath dealt treacherously, 
And then abomination is committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah hath profaned the holiness of the Lord, which he loved, and hath married the daughter of a strange God. That phrase there, the daughter of a strange God, refers to women who worshipped idols. Right? Listen, be careful who you link up with. Young person, be careful who you're dating. Be careful who you marry. Listen, listen. when, when, when people get married, two, um, they, they form a union and they become one, as it were. Right? That, that, that means her bed is, is now your bed. Right? Your car is, is now her car. Right? Your, your money is her money, not ours. Your dog is now our dog. Her debt is now your debt. Her baggage is now your baggage. Her family is now your family. And the things that she cherishes, that she worships, the things that she holds, um, that she holds highly esteemed in her life, her gods slowly start to become your gods. Hey, but Travis, she's so hot. So as hell, player, you better find you one that loves the Lord. Verse 12, the <laughs> Lord will cut off the man that does this, the master and the scholar out of the tabernacles of Jacob, and him that offereth an offering unto the Lord of hosts. And this have you done again, covering the altar with your tears, the altar of the Lord with your tears, with weeping and with crying out, insomuch that he regardeth not the offering anymore or receiveth it with goodwill at your hand. So not only are they offering lame sacrifices to God, they're, they're marrying people who don't believe in God, right? Which is, is, by the way, in direct obedience to God's command, right? But now they're showing up in the temple and they're acting like nothing's wrong. They're crying before the altar, God, why won't you accept my gift? God, why don't I see you in my life? Where are my blessings? Right, and listen, imagine showing up to church, right? Let's just paint this picture. You're showing up to church, you're singing praises to God, and if you're anything like me, right, you can't really sing in the first place anyway. I sound terrible, right? Imagine you're singing and your, your voice just bouncing right off the ceiling, come back and hitting you in the face. If your voice is like mine, it's not a pleasant sound. Listen, and then imagine you go back to the offering boxes back there, you drop your offering in, and it spits right back out of the slot. God says, I don't want it. Right? You're just going through the motions. Had you truly been devoted to me, you would have been listening to me. You would have been listening to my commands. You would have been giving me the best of what you have. Now, I'm not receiving anything that you have to offer to me. Till you begin offering the best of what you have. Verse 14. Yet ye say, wherefore? How? Why? Because the Lord hath been witness between thee and the wife of thy youth, against whom thou hast dealt treacherously, yet is she thy companion and the wife of thy covenant? And did not he make one? And yet they had the residue of the spirit, and whereof and wherefore one, that he might seek a godly seed. Therefore take heed in your spirit and let none deal treacherously against the wife of his youth. Listen, when two people get married, they're entering into a covenant before God. It's a union, as it were. It's a promise to be joined together as one. And verse 15 tells us when this happens, God actually gives them a piece of his spirit. 
right? I've given you a piece of, of my spirit to strengthen this union and to strengthen your bond with me, as it were, uh, your bond with your wife, with your new wife or your new husband, whatever it may be, and then to strengthen your bond together as one with me. I'm going to give you a piece of my spirit. Why? Why? The scripture tells us because God desires strong and godly kids. A strong and godly marriage produces strong and godly kids. A strong and secure marriage makes strong and secure kids. Children build their faith in others, right? And they build their faith in God. Children build their trust in others and their trust in God on the foundation stone of a covenant, of a promise, as it were. Break that covenant and that foundation is cracked. Real quick, verse 16 says that God hates putting away or divorce. That verse does not say that God hates divorced people. But rather that he hates divorce. And in my experience, most people going through it hate it as well. Right? Nobody likes going through that. God doesn't either. But the Bible tells us that there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. God hates divorce, not divorced people. And the chapter ends in verse 17 with a question that the Lord has heard so many times that evidently he's getting tired or he's getting sick of hearing it. Right, verse 17, ye have wearied the Lord with your words, yet ye say, wherein have we wearied him? How are we making you tired, God? How have we wearied you? And when ye say, everyone that doeth evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delighteth in them, or where is the God of judgment? So the chapter ends with them questioning God's judgment. Where is the God of judgment? Where is he? You say that he's just, right? This is a question of an atheist, not the question of, of God's own people. Yet his chosen are asking, if God's so good, then why are you letting all this happen to us, God? They denied his love in chapter one, and now they deny his justice. Where is the God of judgment, right? Picture the scene, right? This is the scene. There's a bunch of people, they're standing around, um, and they're kind of arguing about God. Where is he? Does he even see us? Does he hear us? Does he even exist, right? Does he love us? Look at all this evil around us. God doesn't even care about us anymore. Why? Where is his justice? And yet the people who are arguing are also the ones that are making excuses for their own evil. Show no real respect for God, but God sees, God hears, and he tells them quite suddenly, one day I'm going to show up. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. He says, behold, you want to know where my justice is? You want to know what's going on? You want to know if I love you? He says, I'll prove it. Behold, I will send a messenger, John the Baptist, and he shall prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant. Listen, if you're looking for an Old Testament reference to Jesus Christ, this is it. Right? If you're looking for an Old Testament reference to the Messiah being God himself, this is the one. He's also called the messenger of the covenant, right? The very heart of Jesus' message is a new covenant, right? It's no longer uh, through the tribe of Levi, right? But it's going to be through his love that you're going to be able to access God. Back in chapter 2, these same men were claiming to seek God, yet they were ignoring their covenant with God. They claimed to be looking for God, but they weren't ready for God. And God warns them through Malachi. He says, I'm going to arrive suddenly. 
And when I arrive suddenly, I'm going to arrive with a purpose. Verse 2, but who will be able to abide in the day of his coming? And who shall stand when he appeareth? For he is like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. Listen, the promise of Jesus' coming is not all fireworks and anticipation. They were making the same mistake that we make today, right? They want God to show up and fix everything but themselves. God, come and fix all this injustice around me. Come and fix the whole world. But I'm good. But who may be able to abide in the day of his coming when the Lord shows up? He's not here to fix your life. He's here to fix you. If you call for God's justice upon the world, you better be ready for God's justice on you. Right, the next few verses describe the two purposes of the Lord's arrival, purification and judgment. See, they're sinners just like we were sinners, right? And there's only two options when it comes for sinners standing in the judgment of God or facing the judgment of God. Either get purified or get judged. I don't know about you, but I'll take the number one, please. Verse three. And he said, and he shall sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. And he shall purify the sons of Levi and and purge them as gold and silver, that they may offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. Then shall the offering of Judah and Jerusalem be uh, be pleasant unto the Lord, as in the days of old and as in the former years. The first option, purification, is not an easy process. If you don't like that option, here's the second, verse 5, and I will come near unto you, To judgment. No, I'm good. I'll still take the number one. And I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers and against the adulterers and against the false swearers and against those that oppress the hireling and his wages and oppress the widow and the fatherless and that turn aside the stranger from his right and fear me not and fear not me, saith the Lord of hosts. They ask, where is the Lord through everything that we're going through? God, you don't see all this stuff going on. Where are you? Where is your presence? Right? Does he love us? Does he hear us? Where is your justice, God? And God gives him his plan, and he's got a twofold purpose in his plan. Right? Right here through Malachi, some 400 years before Jesus came. And then this is, this is where it gets good, right? This is where we're starting to reach like the climax, the mountain peak, as it were, in the book of Malachi. Verse 6, he says, for I am the Lord, and I change not. Therefore, ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. He says, listen, it's because I'm good and I don't change. Because I intend to keep my promise with you that you're not consumed. Not because of their goodness. Even from the days of your fathers are you gone away from mine ordinances and have not kept them. Return unto me, and I will return unto you, saith the Lord of hosts. But ye said, wherein or how shall we return? God, do you love us anymore? Right? Don't, don't you see what's going on? Right? God, I mean, don't you have the news, God? You don't, you don't watch Fox News, God? You don't see all this injustice? Right? Have you changed that much? Do you no longer bring justice to the evil? Right, you say, return unto me, but how? How am I supposed to return unto you, God? I can't see you. I don't know how to get back to you. Verse 8, will a man rob God? Yet ye have robbed me. But you say, wherein have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. 
You are cursed with a curse, for ye have robbed me. Even this whole nation, bring ye all the tithes into the storehouse that there may be meat in mine house and prove me now herewith, saith the Lord of hosts. And see if I won't open the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing that there shall not be enough room to receive it. He's like, dang it, Travis. I just sat through 30 minutes of the book of Malachi for you to bust me over the head with some tithes. What kind of super Baptist trash is that? How is that going to help me get back to God? It's a matter of the heart, really. It's a matter of the heart for them, for them and, and for us also. It's about letting go what's holding your heart captive. It's no thing if you realize that God's the one who gifted it to you anyways. For the Jews, they felt like it didn't really matter if they didn't give a full tithe because God isn't watching anyways. Clearly, he can't see us. There's no justice. I have no proof of his love. I don't feel his love. I don't see it. He's not watching. It doesn't matter if I give uh, the full tithe, if I give uh, a full offering. So what if it's lame? So what if it's blind? So what? He doesn't see it. But if you're going to give to God like he isn't watching, then you shouldn't be mad when you receive like he wasn't watching either. If in your service, your, your treasures, your talents, your time, with your children, with everything, if you're going to devote them to God, you're going to give them back to God and act like it's such a burden, but half-heartedly do it like he's not watching, then don't be surprised when he blesses you like he wasn't watching either. Matthew 5, 17, Jesus assured us, think not that I've come to destroy the law or the prophets. I've not come to destroy, but I've come to fulfill. Right, the next chapter, this is the same sermon. He's telling the same crown, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Listen, the moment that Jesus drew his last breath on the cross, Scripture teaches us that the veil um, was torn in two, right? That's making the presence of God available to anybody who seeks him, right? No longer does there have to be this division between the presence of the Almighty and fallen humanity, right? His presence now resides in the heart of the believer, right? Thus, upon Jesus' death, the veil is torn in two. There, there, there was a transfer of duties, so to speak, Right? The Levitical priesthood was removed of their duties, if you will. That's why Peter told the first generation of Christians in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. He says, but you are a chosen generation now, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into this marvelous night. The onus was no longer on the priest to guide the people back into a right relationship with God so that they could fulfill their calling as the light of the world. That onus was no longer on them. That onus is now on you. Right? That responsibility now falls squarely on the shoulders of believers. Right? We would call it the Great, or the great Commission. Peter goes on to say in verse 10, he says, which in time past you were not a people, 
Now you are a people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now you have mercy. Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts, which war against the soul, having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, they're beholding it all right, glorify God in the day of visitation. The calling or the guide to lead all the nations unto the world now falls on us. And it's through our lives, right? Through how we live, through how we treat each other, how we give, how we sacrifice, what we prioritize, how we treat our wives, our bosses, our employees, that the unbelieving world can know that God loves them and also that he is just. Right? The Israelites had, had come to doubt God's love and come to doubt God's justice because the priests had failed to model it for them. You, Christian, are now the royal priesthood. You are the means through which he chooses to glorify his name among the unbelieving world. And so really, I just want to leave us with a couple of like reflection questions. All right, I said I have no points. I don't have points. I just have a few questions. I just want to challenge you to be truthful and be honest with yourself. I'm not asking for people to raise their hands. I'm not asking for people to stand up. I'm just asking for you to open your heart and be truthful with yourself. You've got nothing to lose, everything to gain. Might seem personal, but wrestle with them. These are the areas that Make up the unbelieving world's perception of God. Are you obedient to the Lord? Well, I'm here at church. No, but are you obedient to the Lord? And listen, if you're not in the word of God, and you're not praying regularly, daily, Right? If, if you're not seeking him daily, crying out to him, listen, I, I, would just, I would just guess to say that you're having a tough time knowing if you're being obedient because you, you don't really know what he's trying to speak to you. You don't know what he's saying. Right, so are you obedient um, to the Lord? Are you prioritizing God above all else? Right? Is he your number one? Or is something else taking God's rightful place right, as number one in your home? An idol, as it were. Are you faithful in your marriage? And listen, I'm not just asking about infidelity. There's a whole lot of ways that you can be unfaithful to your spouse. You can cheat on your spouse with work. Cheat on your spouse, showing your kids the affection that she deserves. I mean, you name it. Have you been faithful in your marriage? <clears throat> and are you faithful to give back to God? I'm not just talking about like being faithful to give them what you feel like you guys can afford at this time, right? Like I'm asking you, be real with yourself. Do I give back to God at least 10%? Is he not worth it? Do I give back to him at least 10% of everything that I have? 
But this is the only spot in Scripture, Malachi 3.10, that the Lord challenges us. He says, put me to the test. You don't believe me. You don't believe in a tithe. Whatever it may be, just try me. Try it on for size, dude. Try me out. Watch me work. Are you faithful? I don't know. I don't, I don't check the books. None of us do. I'm asking you to be honest with yourself. Are you faithful in your giving? Listen, we invest in everything under the sun, our health, our house, our car, our kids, the stock market, retirement. It really is the reality. Your health is going to fail you. Your house appreciates, your car is going to break down, your kids are going to leave home, stocks are a crapshoot, and once you retire, you're probably going to be bored to death anyways. <laughs> but Jesus told Peter, I'm going to build the church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Listen, why not invest in something that can't fail? Why not invest in something that doesn't depreciate? That's not going to leave you hanging. Give God a shot, man. Put him to the test. I've never met anybody in their life that's regretted it. And nothing, nothing has changed my life more than when I started to give back to God. Nothing. Come ask me about it later. I'm not going to bore you with, like, the story. But nothing changed my life faster. Give them a shot. If you're here, you never placed your faith in Jesus. You've never placed your faith in, in Jesus' redemptive work on the cross. You've never entered into a relationship with you. I just want to challenge you, right? Like David said in Psalm 34, 8. He says, oh, taste. Give me a shot, right? Give me a taste and you will see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man that trusteth in him. Psalm 86, 5. It says that the Lord is good and he is ready to forgive and that he is plenteous in mercy unto all them that call upon him. Listen, as simple as I can put it, hell is real, but it wasn't created for you and you don't have to go. Right? Hebrews 9.27, it assures us. It's important unto men once to die. It's going to happen. We're all going to die. And then after that comes the judgment. Right, but like I said in my message earlier, there, there's only two options for sinners that are facing God's judgment. Be purified or face the judgment. God tells us that our righteousness is like filthy rags in the book of Isaiah. And Romans um, tells us that there is none righteous. Romans 5.8, it says that God commended or he proves his love towards us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In other places in the scriptures, it tells us that when we sin, we are at war, at enmity with God. We have, we have offended him, as it were. But in our offense, he proved his love to us when he sent Jesus to the cross. Not because we are good, because he is good. And so here's the deal, John 3.16. It tells us, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And whoever believes in him won't perish but have everlasting life. Romans 3 twin says that there's none righteous, not one. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. Romans 6.23 says that there's a wage or a payment for that sin, and the wage is, de is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then real simple, what do I do? What does that mean? I don't have a relationship with God. I know that I'm a sinner. I believe that Jesus came and he died for my sins. If thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God had raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. 
It's just as simple as the Bible can put it, just as simple as anybody can put it. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. If you've never done that, man, I just want to give you that opportunity today, right now. So if everybody just bow your heads with me for a second. If you've never called upon the name of the Lord to be saved, you could just say something real simple, a real simple prayer unto God. You say, Travis, I, I don't pray. I've never called out upon God. I'm not religious. I'm not spiritual. You could just say something quietly in your seat. I'm just like this. Dear Lord, God, I, I know that I'm a sinner. God, honestly, I, I don't understand it all. I, I don't know it all, but I ask you to forgive me. I ask you to come in and be Lord and Savior of my life. God, from here on, give me the strength and the courage to live a life devoted wholeheartedly to you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like more information about our ministry, check out our website at battlefieldbaptist.org or follow us on Facebook and Instagram. We'll see you next time.